welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and wow, lockdown's getting hard. It's been a year, people, and I miss people. I miss being crammed together in a sweaty pub. I miss running marathons with thousands of others, and I miss that moment even when someone spills half their pint down your neck at a chaotic gig. I miss the cinema, I miss shopping, but I miss my friends. So that's why this week's book has been both my best read of 2021 so far, and perhaps the most upsetting. Our guest is Bethany Clift, and her debut novel, Last One at the Party, takes our current isolation and dials it up to 11 stupid. Last One at the Party is the story of the last woman alive, following a global pandemic that kills, well, everyone. She remains to navigate the ruins of society. Sounds grim, doesn't it? Utterly unpalatable in our current moment, you'd think. Well, trust me, it's not. Best book is laugh out loud for me. It's wry and it's wise and it takes some real satirical pot shots at the way we lived in the before times. It's an adventure story and an epic quest and a love story in which loving yourself becomes the most important thing. So yeah, there's plenty of reasons to read it right now. But it is heartbreaking, truly, amongst all the blood and viscera and madness that we discuss week on week here on Talking Scared, amidst all that carnage, there are quiet moments in the last one at the party that I'll carry with me for years. Going excited is a great book, but do be warned. It actually helps that Beth herself is such a cheerful person. Having spoken to her now, Um, It's lifted some of the weight that her book placed on me. This is a good chat, and we even get some of the horrors in between laughing fits. So, if you're game, or if you want to really feel something, come with me to a random stretch of road in the middle of an empty Britain. There's smoke on the horizon, and you don't want to know what's burning. Take my hand, we all need company. Let's talk scared. Good afternoon, Beth, and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm delighted to have you on the show a little earlier than planned. (laughs) Where in the world are you today? I am in the lovely Milton Springsteen, uh, known as Milton Keynes to most people. The world of the roundabout. (laughs) Indeed, yeah, to our our international listeners, that may be a bit of a mystery, but it's it's notorious (laughs) for being unnavigable. Yes, if you don't like roundabouts, please don't come to Milton Keynes. Well, it feels a little bit like spring has sprung today, certainly where I am. We've got the first hint of blue skies. It's lovely here as well. Yeah, there's some optimism in the air. The rain has stopped. That's essentially our <laughs> summer. That should be the British motto is the rain has stopped. We're all right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it'd be good in a T-shirt. Uh, anyway, right. So we're here to talk about your debut novel, Last One at the Party. It was published a few weeks ago. Um, in mm-hmm. early February by Hodder, and that's in the UK. What's the situation in other territories? I do have a US publisher. It's coming out at the beginning of May, which is really exciting. Coming out with Mobius, who are part of Hatchet again, which is really lovely. 
Um, and I also have, I can't remember whether there's eight deals in Europe now. <laughs> yeah, it's coming out in about eight places in Europe. That's such a terrible thing to say, isn't it? But, you, know, you kind of, at the beginning, you're like, oh, I've got a deal here. I've got a deal there. And you can, you can reel them all off. And then after a while, you realise you've got to write another book. And all of a sudden, <laughs> everything else goes out your brain. Um, so, yes. So, I am being published in Europe and I'm being published in North America a bit later this year. A lot of my listeners are North American, Canadian. Excellent. They should definitely look out for it because I'm not sure when it's starting to go out in America for proofs. Um, I should imagine it's quite soon. So, yes. So, please and feel free to contact me if you'd like a proof. (laughs) Right. I have an awful lot to say about this novel. An awful (laughs) lot. More than most weeks. And I always talk a lot. Please don't say awful like that. Well, well, I have a bone to pick with you. You've upset me badly. But it's the only show where that is a good thing. To kick us off, can you introduce us to your story? Yes, I can. So last one at the party is about a woman who, as far as she is aware, is the only survivor of a global pandemic. The novel is about how, where, and ultimately why she decides to survive. And that's probably as much as I can say without (laughs) giving away a number of spoilers. (laughs) Indeed, and we we may have to severely edit this conversation (laughs) because I've got things I want to ask that may tip over that line. So God knows what you'll actually hear by the time this goes live. I think this is the end, isn't it? So it's been lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right, so to set the context here, This book has got a dazzling pink cover. It's all glitter and sexy font choices. (laughs) And it looks machine tooled to appeal as a kind of piece of fluffy chick lit. And all all the blurbs talk about how funny it is, how life affirming, how uplifting. Now, on visuals alone, across a packed bookshop, I don't think your typical horror fan would be likely to necessarily gravitate towards this novel. Yet I haven't read a book, and I mean this, I really mean it, I haven't read a book that has upset me so much (laughs) in years. Oh, my goodness. Oh, honestly, it had the most profound effect on me. It left me kind of winded on the verge of tears. Now, normally, that would be a criticism, but here you're amongst friends. It's a badge of (laughs) honour. But to start on the outside of the book and work in, has that that visual effect been designed to subvert expectations? And and what has the reaction been from other people who bought this book and read it and been and been shocked? I think that the cover design is obviously very very clever and has been done because, in as much as there are incredibly horrific moments in the book this is a story about an emotional journey as much as it is about a physical journey it is a story for me that is filled with hope and it is a strong human story and I think it is a strong female story as well it's about someone and and you know the character is female but she could be male or female but it's about someone finding out who they are in the worst possible situation so I think the cover for me is allowing the audience to be as wide as it possibly can be. But that obviously being said, I think 
you know, we're still in very early days. A lot of the people that have read it so far know a little bit about the book. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a presence on Twitter, there's a presence on social, you know, there is a presence out there that tells you what the book is about. But that having been said, I have obviously had people who were not expecting what they got inside the book from the outside of the book. And the reaction in those cases has been good and bad. You know, it's been... I've had some people who obviously have said, nope, wasn't for me at all. But then I've had other people who said, it, you know, have said it completely defied my expectations of what I thought it was going to be. But then also how much I enjoyed it. So I, I, I personally feel it's still quite early days to kind of say, you know, whether or not there's a reaction to outside versus inside in, a gra- in the grander scheme of things. But uh, I, I love the cover. and I think the, club, the cover is so perfect and also so clever because you know the idea of having a lone woman left at the end of the world is something which subverts so many people's idea about what post-apocalypse is and then her journey again is just not I don't think what you're expecting or what a lot of people would be expecting. Completely agree one the cover is ingenious and (laughs) it's quite as I say I think it's quite a brave marketing tactic because it you know it could put off people who only buy books with an axe on the front cover you know what I mean like (laughs) um I read this book knowing what it was going to be about I mean I was approached by your publicist who knows what I do so I'm thinking presumably there is enough in this to to warrant it being on a on a horror podcast but even I didn't expect to be as affected by what I was reading And, and this is someone I mean I have spent years in the trenches reading post-apocalyptic stuff and and i think what i would compare this to for my listeners who who aren't yet aware of the book or or don't know what i knew going in take the scenario in something like i am legend last man on earth take the the scene in the stand where where larry is trying to navigate a devastated new york with all the horror littering (laughs) the streets and the entire story is that is is that you know that navigating a a devastated landscape. But as you say, it becomes an increasingly upbeat story. But before we get into the details, I've got to obviously address the elephant in the room. This was released into the the midst of a global pandemic, and the pandemic comes up week in week out on this podcast because how can it not? But rarely since the very first episode when I talked to Paul Tremblay about Survivor Song and his epidemic, really has it been such a pertinent background theme. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the timeline of, of writing and publishing this. So I started writing it in early 2018. Um, so obviously COVID was nowhere. And I wrote it and then I got an agent and then once I got my agent I did a bit of rewriting and then it went on submission to publishing houses in October 2019 Um, and I signed my deal in December 2019 and then I was working on my edits in February 2020 when my sister sent me a picture of a tiny article that she'd seen in the metro um, about a virus, a Chinese virus that had killed, I think, one person at that point, but was spreading quite fast. And it was, you know, the sidelines that you get that are kind of like four or five sentences long, if that. And she kind of sent it to me and she was like, oh my goodness, is your book coming true? 
And then it must only have been three or four weeks later when it was just everywhere and it was front page and it was every headline. And then obviously at the beginning of March, we locked down when I was actually working on my second round of edits. So everything in the book that is not specifically about COVID-19 was written before COVID-19. So all the thing, all the stuff that I wrote about people wearing masks and social distancing, I made up because I guessed that that would be what would happen if there was some, if there's a pandemic and you don't know how it's spread, you're not going to get close to other people and you're going to try and protect yourself from the outside air in whichever way you can. And then obviously that all started to come true and that was happening. And I had a conversation with my editor, Kimberly, early on about the fact that I always wanted the novel to be really very realistic I didn't want anything to happen within last one of the party that couldn't theoretically happen in the world that we live in so that's why rather than an alien invasion killing everybody off I used a pandemic to kill everybody off very quickly um so our conversation was basically if this is if the novel's going to stay realistic and it's going to be set like three three years in the future we can't not recognize that this has something like this has happened before because you know it's inbred in us now it would be you know if this happens if this happens again if we see an article if I see something if you know your mask will come out and your social distance without even thinking about it so that's why COVID-19 is in the novel and that's why I wrote it into the novel is because the novel is set in the real world it's not set in a parallel universe where this never happened and it's the first time and people are really surprised and we don't really know what to do it's it's set where we are yeah and it's the first book i've read that directly references covid19 and our current scenario and it's <laughs> it's a bit of a weirdly hopeful thing because obviously the disease that you know your fictional disease 6dm um, which stands for six days maximum because that's the one you've got when you catch it is, is a hor- horrific thing. And and I'm a massive hypochondriac. So anything to do with disease, <laughs> honestly, you should have met me in the early, early days of the pandemic. I was just a puddle on the floor. So reading it made me very aware of my body. And, you know, I got very tense and I don't like reading about diseases. But <laughs> the disease that you create is is so awful that it's almost kind of like reassuringly fictional, if you know what I mean. <laughs> It's like, God, it kills 99, it kills everyone, and you basically melt. It's like Ebola <laughs> versus meets flu. But it was also really nice. This is going to sound weird in a book that's about the end of the world. It was really nice to read a book which talked about how we got over COVID. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's like yeah. looking back on COVID, I was really thinking, oh, yeah, it will be quite cool to look back on this in four years. Hopefully there won't then be a, a thing that devastates us all. But, yeah, it was quite nice. But I do wonder, what was it like doing that final polish, writing and, and reading and editing and doing, doing all the close work on this during the early events of the pandemic? Was it was there quite a, quite a psychological weight there or was it was it freeing? How did you react? It's strange because obviously this is just such an... We, this isn't something that none of us have ever experienced before. And, you know, you, could, you literally could not write this shit. Do you know what I mean? Like if, mm. I'd, if I'd written a book about the last year and tried to get it published two years ago people would have been like don't be so ridiculous there's no way that our children will come out of school in March and not go back till September and in March there's no way that people would have believed that they'd be on furlough for a year 
I think the the thing that made it kind of easier is that it was such an unknown situation that it it was almost like I didn't know how to react because it it just felt so unreal. The world that we were living in felt so unreal that what I was writing was unreal. And, And I did have a couple of wobbles. I remember I emailed you know, I did email Kim at one point because there's there's one there's one image that I actually added in the edit before COVID happened, and it's kind of about it's a, it's I'll try not to do, give it as a spoiler, but it's it's the image of how they get rid of the huge number of bodies in London. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I I emailed Kim and I said I think this is a step too far. You know, I'm I'm worried that this is just too dark and this is too much. And kind of her reply was obviously it's up to you, but if you're gonna go for it if it's right for the story, it's right for the story. And that's what you've got to write. You've got to write the story that wants to be written without any kind of external feeling of, oh, I can't write this because of what's happening at the moment. Because the the book is going to exist long after this, you know? Um, so I had to kind of write the book that I I wanted to write, really. Because otherwise, I guess... I guess what's the point? Does that make sense? You know, yeah, yeah, kind sure. of like you're either going to write it or you're not going to write it. So it just has to be as good as you can make it. I think it's probably coming across in in the, the tone of my voice that I I loved this book <laughs> as much as I found it a very difficult thing to read. Even though it is like the pages fly, it's easy in that sense. But it, <laughs> there, there was there was a psychological weight to it that I found surprising I think I think is partly due to the quality of your writing but also partly because of the context in which I'm reading it obviously yes. mm-hmm. um it's tougher than you expect going in but there is a, an awful lot of fun right and I I have this theory that well it's, it's not really my theory it's just a, an observation but <laughs> that that um theory is too grand a word um I think that as as both writers and readers we are drawn to apocalypse because it it strips away all the complexity and the ethical morass and the interconnected social systems that plague our lives. Mm. So you can just literally turn the Monopoly board over and go, fuck it. (laughs) I'm starting again. (laughs) Um, Exactly. You know, you you don't have to worry about plot holes or stuff like that, because it's just, you know, it's the world world you want. It's the blank canvas. Yeah. you do that and you plunge your unnamed protagonist into an absolute hellscape. <laughs> How much fun was it to do that? Was it fun to do the world building? Um, so I think you're 100% right. And when I thought about, when I first started writing the book, and when I thought about what I wanted to write, I, I had one thing that I wanted to do and I wanted to write something. I mean, I am legend obviously was one of my influences and you're exactly right to talk about that because the great thing about I Am Legend is although there are the kind of vampire creatures up until the end I'm not going to give away any spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it there is no other survivors and when I first started writing the book I really wanted to do it that she that after her husband dies again I didn't that's a massive spoiler um because it's in the first page (laughs) um she never everyone everyone dies guys everyone <laughs> dies like no, 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 none of this is a spoiler everyone dies if they're a You're character right. they're dead literally everyone dies <laughs> so so yeah so i never wanted her to speak to a, physically speak to another person after he dies and she 
she doesn't she never speaks and that was really important to me and at one point during the kind of writing process I had some feedback from a from a reader who who said you know she's a brilliant character it'd be brilliant if she met someone else and they went together and explored and blah 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 and 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 they were right and I knew they were right but that wasn't what I wanted to write what I wanted to write was a protagonist and an antagonist in one so they are their their very best hope and their very worst enemy and that's all it is there's no domestic drama within it you know the thing that she batters against as you've said is herself and her environment so I writing London I've probably got another kind of I don't know 50 pages maybe that are not included because of course it's like you know it's a it's a literary theme park of of ideas I mean you know the the amount of stuff that I had to leave out about taking a bike and and there's no cars so you can just ride your bike and then at one point she was like you know dressed up she went to a really posh dress shop and she just spent a day changing her clothes all the time you know the, the amount of different things that you can and you would do given that kind of emptiness especially if you're desperately trying to avoid the fact that your situation is incredibly precarious and your mental health is probably breaking down minute by minute sounds terrible to say it was fun but as you said there's no limits in your imagination when you've got a blank canvas like that and you can do whatever you want I think the hardest thing was to balance the horror with the delight almost because there is only so much misery that I think a reader can take before they do need a break and you have to lighten it ever so slightly in order to be able to continue. For me, at least, I know that some brilliant novelists, uh, you know, like, for example, Cormac McCarthy's The Road is without light relief for the entire book. And I read that book and then I felt like I needed to spend three days in bed to just get over the fact that I'd read that book. (laughs) <laughs> and he's such a brilliant writer that I read that book even though I was like I can't read anymore I just can't read anymore oh I'll read a little bit oh god I shouldn't have read, read anymore you know but I, I don't know whether I'm a good enough writer to do that so there had to be some levity in order to make it an experience that is enjoyable I'm gonna say <laughs> I'm gonna say something now that I mean 100% right I'm not blowing smoke up anyone's arse here I mean this <laughs> Yes, yes, there are moments in this book I laughed out loud, like literally laughed out loud. But I found this a more upsetting book to read than Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Really? Gosh, wow. That is quite the accolade. I I found it more upsetting than The Road. The the infamous book that drives us all to the brink of suicide, and I found this more (laughs) horrifying and more upsetting. And upsetting is the word I keep coming back to because it it wasn't it didn't scare me beyond the whole thing about reading about disease, which is particular to me. It mm. upset me, which I've said this about a few other books that I've read. Gemma Files's recent short story collection did the same thing. It upset me more than horrified me. Mm-hmm. Um, now on most podcasts, that would be damning with the <laughs> with the faintest praise. Um, but it, on this show, that is an accolade. But yeah, I found it more powerful than the road. <laughs> Oh, see, that's terribly kind of you. But I mean, after I'd read The Road, I went outside and I saw a plastic bag floating down the street. And rather than some kind of, what's the movie that Sam Oh, American Beauty. Yeah, American Beauty. 
And rather than think of that, I thought, I'm going to pick that plastic bag up and I'm going to put it in my pocket because you never know when that's going to come in handy. <laughs> that's how the road influenced me. I just thought, my God. <laughs> the, the thing from the road that always horrified me, um, and I don't know why, there's, there's something so horrendously chilling about it, is when in that one bit of flashback when the whatever is happening is happening and his wife turns around and just says, fill the bath. And ever since I read that, I'm like, oh God, that's that's like real. That something about yeah. that got to the marrow of me. Um, yeah. yeah, listeners, if you haven't read The Road, for God's sake, read The Road. I mean, it's a it's a once in a lifetime book. It is just yeah, it's. But God's sake, don't read it. I was speaking to someone about this last night. Don't read it right now. <laughs> no, yeah, don't read it right now. I wait till you have your first bar- family barbecue and like <laughs> when everyone's gone. Home. Yeah, then then read The Road and think how much worse it could have been. Yeah, yeah, then read The Road. Then read my book and think, oh, you know what? There's a couple of laughs in that. <laughs> you mentioned before, though, obviously it is a largely dialogue-free novel for obvious reasons. And th- that that then enforces a lot of kind of interiority inside this woman's existence. Mm. Yet the, the book never falls into the trap of just being descriptive paragraphs you know there is action there is there is dialogue with herself there's flashback but there, but you know there, there is nonetheless an awful lot of pressure on making this this one person who is our sole conduit onto this world making her interesting enough for us to go along for the ride did you feel a lot of pressure to work on that character and to make sure that she was you know worth rooting for and worth following so she is so she is based on an amalgamation of a lot of very strong women that I have known in my life who you know so who have gone through times where they haven't had that strength and then you know have found that strength and then I think for everyone male or female it's kind of a cyclical thing isn't it I feel like we go you know I go through like points in my life where I'm very much in charge of my life and I'm choosing the direction I'm going in and then I go through points where I'm like what the hell am I doing I'm just wandering around picking up socks you know for me I always wanted her reaction to be how I felt that that someone that I had met would react so she's not a scientist she's not a survivalist she's not from the army she has no special skills she is learning as she goes she's learning about the life around her she's learning about herself um and I think there is obviously a huge amount of pressure to make sure that she is someone you will go with because there's literally no one else to go with so you know when people kind of write this is my main character and this is my secondary character and actually everybody likes my secondary character a bit more I there there isn't that opportunity really I mean there are obviously other characters appearing in the flashback but if you if you don't like her you're in kind of a bit of trouble but then very interestingly I never realized that she would be and is now that the book's out there in the world a controversial character there are a lot of people who do not like her at all and do not agree with her reactions in this world especially in the beginning in London and especially some of her interactions that she has with with animals in London as much as anything else because obviously animals are the only things that are left alive and she makes some decisions in her interactions with animals that have proved incredibly controversial to people and that I've had 
people write significantly about in reviews that they feel that that this makes her an incredibly unsympathetic character and someone used something the other day which they said was a technique and I'd not heard of it it's called I think it's called the stroke the dog technique or something in the within the first 10 pages of introducing your character you get them to do something like stroke a dog or do something nice for a child and that means that your audience immediately warms to that character and will follow them on their journey and you know in the first 10 pages of my book my character doesn't particularly do anything great and in fact it's quite a while before she does anything selfless at all but then my response to people who feel this way is I excuse my language but I fucking defy you to do something different than she does I defy you to put your own life on the line or risk injury to do something really warm and human in that situation when you have been through what she's been through and you are facing what she is facing which is nothing you know there is no one coming to her help if something goes wrong she is on her own and you know as much as I like to think that I would be out there petting the lions I don't think I would and I feel like if you would you're a better person than most of the people I know (laughs) right yeah that gives me a great chance to address several things here so (laughs) so (laughs) I'm going to riff and monologue a little here now because I'm I'm going to try and synthesize a number of questions and themes and and stuff that is a kind of running trend on this podcast as well so I'm going to I'm going to talk a bit now and I apologize because this should be about you no you go for it (laughs) right so at the risk of really infuriating my audience because they've heard me say the same thing now for about four weeks on the on the bounce um during February I've been doing women in horror month obviously trying to promote female voices in horror and one of the prevailing trends has been this idea of uh, women authors are plagued by having supposedly unlikable protagonists Mm. and my argument I've repeated ad nauseum (laughs) is that men get to be anti-heroes women are unlikable or challenging protagonists and I think it is a bullshit relativism and I think a book like this really shows up that double standard because the apocalyptic genre and particular kind of like the last man alive subgenre by its very definition tends to be male oriented and it tends to be quite action driven and it tends to be that idea of like you know the the frontiersman who is self-sufficient and can deal with things and is, is gleefully unshackled from a kind of moral code because society has fallen mm-hmm. um and you, you look at I Am Legend, in which the entire point of that novel is that he is a monster. Mm. Yet we and he still isn't root likeable for him. at all. He isn't likeable even before that happened. I mean, he's, he's, he's tantamount to a rapist at par- parts, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, uh, but we like him because he's male and because he is self actualizing and he's driven and blah, blah, blah. And you take a woman, a worse scenario, and all of a sudden, she's supposed to pet the fucking dog and it's just it's 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 ridiculous yet you do then give us a dog (laughs) (laughs) and i wondered why you introduced a dog into this story what was the first of all sorry for that little rant there i hope you see that i'm I'm coming out to bat for you no 
Loving the rant, loving the rant. Um, but she has this dog. Why the dog? What what function does he serve in the story and in this woman's journey? So the dog basically is her football that Tom Hanks had. I can't remember what what did he call the football? Wilson. So the the dog is her Wilson because I didn't want her to speak to another human being, but there has to be something for her to there has to be a a reason for her to live because I you know humans as humans we are we're tactile we're sociable we're emotional we need things to kind of to love to, to cuddle to you know I genuinely feel that without Lucky the dog I don't I just don't think that she would have made it as far as she does and she herself admits that because I think that loneliness and that lack of future and that understanding that there is no future for you I just don't know how long you would go on with that for I I, I felt like there had to be some kind of hope and lucky is that hope he is purely and simply there to be loved and to represent to represent love and you know and that's what he does very very well because he's a very good boy yeah, I'm kind of fighting back tears again. I, I, <laughs> oh God. So I think. But she doesn't pet him. Can I just say that at the very beginning, she doesn't pet him and she doesn't stroke him. Let's not try and pretend this is going to make you like her because, yeah, I won't say what happens at the beginning, but you will not like her when she gets lucky. That does not immediately make you think, ah, oh, off we go. She's a, she's a, she's a good lass. She's going to work out all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I tweeted you, didn't I, saying I'm 40 pages from the end and if anything happens to Lucky, we're going to have words. I have had that so many times. Literally, if I break down the messages that I've had, I've had, obviously I've had a lot of great messages about her and about her journey and about people who have really, really kind of, you know, empathised with her and they she's given them hope. But I've had far more than messages about Lucky. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not I'm not going to spoil it and give away what happens at all, but it is a nail biter. And I, I have a, a new, I've got a seven month old puppy and Aww. everyone is sick of hearing about him on this show. I talk about him <laughs> most weeks, Ted, but I, I, I love that dog more than I thought it was possible to love something that isn't my wife. Um, <laughs> like the, the, I'm not, I'm not really doing like the horror maestro shtick much good here talking about, but <laughs> no. I thought you lived in a dungeon. Yeah. Just me and the dog. Uh, no, there is there is a revelation in the final pages. I'm not going to say what it is that that tells you what the outcome of Lucky's story is. And I read it, and I sat up in bed, and I looked at the foot of my bed where my dog was fast asleep in his in his crate, and I burst into tears. Oh, and that's all I'll say about Lucky. We've got a we've got a six month old puppy pickle. And yeah, I'm not sure whether I'd have written the same story if I'd had Pickle first, because again, I didn't think I could love anyone as much as my husband and kids. And yeah, I'll be honest, at points more than my husband and kids, but you know, you do, you love them. (laughs) Yeah, God. I mean, that does bring us then, though, to the the part where we have to have words, because... (laughs) I thought we'd had words already. No, no, no. Tip of the iceberg. Whilst I don't think your narrator's behaviour towards animals really indicts her, 
I'm not sure that you writing about animals in the way that doesn't indict you. <laughs> there is one incident, for example, with a chimpanzee in a zoo oh, that, I know. That, that left me just bereft. I mean, like, the only thing that's ever come close to that is, again, going back to Stephen King's The Stand, most of my listeners will have read that book. There is a mm. there is a moment in The Have you read The Stand? I'm presuming oh, gosh, you have. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a moment in the stand where Lloyd Henry, the one of the villains, the uh, the ex-con, he's talking about his youth and how he had this rabbit and he yes. he um he forgets to feed it and then he finds the rabbit and it, it's died a horrible death. And I read that book when I was about twelve, as you as you do with Stephen King. Mm. Um, and I remember amongst all the the trauma of that novel, that's the thing that I've carried with me to this day, is that that passage about the rabbit. And I feel like a few moments in this book and that that one with the chimpanzee in the zoo is something that will I will never forget reading that passage oh. it, it's horrifying and I do want to say and this is we've joked a lot and and as much as I want to make sure everyone reads this book because it's great I will say go into it with a bit of a trigger warning that the animal stuff you've got to admit yourself Beth it's pretty tough isn't it it is pretty tough yes and and it's really interesting because the the bit that you're talking about, I, I remember writing it because there's something that she hears that leads her to that scene in the novel. And I, I, I was thinking about what that could be, you know, it's, it's a noise, basically. And I was thinking about what that noise could be. And then I was thinking about where she is geographically in London. And then I thought, oh, that's it. And, and I wrote it. And as soon as I'd written it, and I thought, I thought, oh. And I just, I went and I had to go and have a break because I just thought it's so real and so true, but it doesn't make it any less horrifying. It's the reality of the situation, but it doesn't mean that it's not upsetting because it is upsetting. So yes, I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry, because obviously it's yeah it's it's part of the story and again it's it's realistic part of the story but it is it's not it's not one of the funny parts of the story yeah well, no it's it, it's incredibly powerful um but yeah difficult let's let's leaven things a little bit at the same time <laughs> it is a very very funny book really funny and i think it gets increasingly funny as the as the story continues and you get a lot of currency, I notice, from sort of aspects of life that aren't usually covered in fiction, certainly not covered in relation to women um, or in, in, in depictions of women. So there's a lot of asides about menstruation, a lot of sort of scatological humour, um, a surprising amount of masturbation. <laughs> Again, <laughs> end of the world. You're on your own. You're going to be bored. What are you going to do to pass the time when the TV stops working? <laughs> but, you know, yes. Again, it kind of ties back to that kind of apocalyptic glee. There is a sense of like, right, all the bets are off now. We can show life mm. in the raw. Is that what you were thinking? You're going to like, I'm going to go for this. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? I was, I, I wrote something the other day and I said, the thing that you have to do is you need to take kind of like your own ordinary life. And especially in a situation like this, and you need to just push it as far as you can think it would go. And, you know, how many of the things that we do, and this is tied back to kind of like her journey as well, is how many of the things that we do in the way that we live our lives are because we are being watched and we are being judged. 
And it's not, I'm not talking about even the people around you in your house or your family. I'm talking about the wider kind of world that says to me, you know, that I need to, I need to be thin. I need to worry about getting old. I need to shave my legs. I need to wear this. I need to wear that. I need to, you know, I need to hold up this image as the virgin, the mother or the whore. I've got to kind of fit into a bracket. And if that's all gone, and you don't have to do that anymore, I mean, for her, it's got even more significance because she's tried so hard her entire life to have this idea of happiness that's not her idea of happiness, but she just she's never stepped back to think about that. And I think, I think for me, that's one of the reasons why I know that obviously the book coming out now is troublesome in ways because it's about, it's got a pandemic in it. It's not about a pandemic. It's got a pandemic in it. And the pandemic section is over quite quickly. So, you know, anyone who's looking for the kind of contagion, how did we contain it? They don't contain it. As you said, everyone dies. Um, But I do think the resonance that it has with our lives at the moment and the fact that we've all had to take a step back from the grindstone that we've been on for however many years is is really real you know for a lot of people you filter your life through so many other things you know you filter your life through your work and through your social life and through your relationships or through going through the gym or all your passions and you know for all of us those filters have been really stripped away and I mean I know for me it's nothing you know it's nothing life-changing but I'm already thinking about actually do I live where I want to live? You know, is this kind of, you know, is my work-life balance what I want it to be? You know, is this the childhood that I really want for my kids? And, you know, for the first time in ages, there's actually been some time to kind of think about those big decisions in life and those big things that normally get pushed to the back of your brain because you've got to go out to dinner or you're going to the cinema or the oven needs cleaning or whatever. You've just been given this break, really, from the norm. And that's what she gets in a much bigger way. She gets a complete break from the life that she's been struggling to live. And I think I think that's where the the charge of being uplifting comes from, because it, it, it feels to me that you've constructed a narrative in which the narrator goes on a physical journey. But there are other kinds of journeys, too, aren't there? Mm, yes, most most definitely. And I think you know, it's it's that kind of other journey, I think, that, that resonates and that that does, I guess, make it more than just another apocalypse story starring a man who's going to go off and be a bit of a bastard, but we don't mind because he's a strong bastard and he might try and save the world whilst he's bastarding around. You know, it's it's her story. It's not the story of someone saving the world. It's her story of her saving herself because that's all that's left and that's all that she can do so that's in the end what she does decide to do in in terms of analogues to yourself like you must have done a lot of research into survival and crisis as read part of this book oh god i don't like no one wants to admit that they did no research do they i mean you know that's a terrible thing for an author to say oh no i didn't do any research and i i did research on obviously what would happen if everyone you know disappeared and how long would things last and you know kind of how what rate do bodies decompose at my google history is not great um but I did very little research on survival simply because I didn't want to put anything in that she wouldn't know 
Oh, of course, yeah. So yeah. I, I, so I didn't, you know. So, so there are a couple of massive and blatant mistakes in this novel. Massive and blatant mistakes about how she survives, and you know, when she kind of ends up where she decides to end up eventually. Some of the things that she does, I purposely put some stuff in that's not true because that's what she believes, but she doesn't know because she's not read it on Google. It's just what she's heard down the pub. And no one's picked them up yet. It's really interesting. There's one that I thought would be everywhere that people would be like, that's not true, but they haven't. And it's re- and I can't wait until someone finds it. It's like an Easter egg. Oh, I'll have to ask you off air because I can't think what they are. I th- I assumed you would you would have become a made up member of the Preppers Club that you'd have like a bag pack now ready to go if something went oh, wrong. Do you want to do you want to know something really really not terrible but I am I already was so obviously I read a lot of post apocalypse fiction and it you know sci fi is my genre of choice and if a spaceship lands in my back garden tomorrow I am getting the family with me and going I don't know we'll we'll work it out. But um, so I do have a bag packed. I do, I do, and I know where I would go. And it's not like a huge survival rucksack. I've got like you know some protein bars and some batteries and some torches. And it's as much in case like you know the electricity runs out of anything else. Please, people, don't contact me <laughs> to ask me like for kind of you know some some prep knowledge because I don't have it. But I do have a kind of survival instinct that means that. I know where I would go if I needed to get my family somewhere where I thought we could be kind of safe underground. Does that make me sound terrible? I'm totally a Democrat. Don't I? You know, no one. American viewers, I'm sorry. Don't think I'm a prepper. I'm not a prepper. I just, yeah. I'll make you sound good. I often say, so me and my wife recently watched uh, this new film, Greenland. Oh, God, I watched Greenland. Mark Commode loved it. I did not love it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, oh, I, Sarah Butler. I, I loved the first half an hour, and I felt it was diminishing returns as it went along. I really enjoyed the first bit. I thought they handily forgot about the meteors for quite a while. It was like all these things <laughs> yeah. were coming to Earth, and then all of a sudden it was like, well, actually, no, this is a different story for the next 45 minutes, and then we'll think about that at the other end. But, yes, go on, sorry. So did you but watch... No, I, I, I watched that, and I was talking to my wife, and, and my wife has this ludicrous notion that I am a brave person. She always, <laughs> she, she always says to me that I would be the kind of person who would run towards danger, and I'm like, yeah, but only because I get confused easily. Um, How long have you so, been married? But, oh, yeah, 18. Uh, God, I've actually forgotten. Three years. Um <laughs> Two years, two she, years no, we've married. Jesus, she can't now. hear this episode. She can't, <laughs> two years. No, but I always say to her that, like, in any kind of apocalyptic scenario, I would be the bad guy. I'd be the guy in the the, the film that you are supposed to see as the baddie because <laughs> I've been trained by apocalyptic culture to know that they survive. I I would be Negan <laughs> from The Walking Dead, you know what I mean? Because that that's what works. So, yeah, so I... I'm totally with you on that, like survival instinct, etc. I yeah, I've been the antagonist in my own apocalypse. Well, and there is a bit in there where you know she meets with her best friend, and there's a conversation about it. And I think her best friend very much has the right idea. Don't don't kind of think that this situation is some kind of romantic situation because it's not. Things yeah. are going to go downhill very very fast, and obviously in the end they don't get the chance. But but she's right, and and you know maybe there's a kind of spin-off novel where I write about what would have happened if 
if it hadn't got to the UK. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm just going to write that down now. <laughs> Speaking of which, the novel ends in a way that I, I loved. It may frustrate some people, but I, I really enjoyed the way it ended. Um, it reminded me quite a bit of the ending of The Passage by Justin Cronin, um, uh, the, the kind of the kind of semi-ambiguity to it. But it, am I to believe there is more to come in this world? So the answer to that is I, I, I don't know at this point. I have a I have a two book deal with Hodder, but I'm writing my I've just finished the first draft of my next novel, which is a different in a different world. And it's a standalone story. Um, I have sold, obviously, the TV rights to Last One at the Party, and that is in development at the moment. As part of that, we had to I did talk about what happens next. because I do know what happens next, because actually this long story short, Last One at the Party is part of a longer story that I had written, but it felt right to end the novel where I ended it. So um, so there is more and I know what happens next and I do know what the kind of next story would be. Uh, whether or not I write that as a novel, whether or not it's part of the TV show, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I do genuinely think that this isn't the end of her story. I'm just not quite sure how her story will continue yet. So, yeah. Okay. That's about all I'm legally allowed to say at the moment. No, that's fine. Am I right that it's Ridley Scott's production company who have bought the rights? It is Ridley Scott's production company. And yes, I am fist bumping myself as we say that. (laughs) So is that that a TV um, adaptation? Yeah, so it's a TV adaptation, yeah, which which is great because I think the very first thing that the novel was was I wrote a I wrote a spec script for The Walking Dead um, about a woman who lives in a wood with her dog, and then I very quickly realised that that wasn't nearly big enough to contain the story that I wanted to write, and that's why it kind of became a novel. But and I feel it would never have worked as a film, so I'm really pleased that that they're looking at it for a TV show because I think that's exactly the right vehicle for it. I know lots of people talk about the, like the golden age of TV, um, almost to the detriment of film. I'm still a massive cinephile, but I think it's really nice now that we have we have a world in which long form or or feature film storytelling is equally good. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got the option of either as as, as best befits the story. Um, and yeah, I, c- I can see this being a massive, massive success as, as a TV show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, right. Okay. So let's let's close up now with um, my final four questions, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Just give me the the first thing that kind of pops into your mind with this. Uh, question one: What was your gateway to horror? It was Stephen King. I read him about the same age as you did, twelve ish, um, and he is that kind of. He's one of those authors I think that bridges the gap from you know, your childhood novels to your adult novels and, you you know, pissed off to pick up on more adult themes. And he's just, I, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I like, I, I find he blows my mind how prolific and imaginative he is. That the same person that wrote Christine then went on to write the Dark Tower series is just beyond me. So, yeah. What's your favourite? Oh God! I do you know my my absolute favourite is the Long Walk, which is one of his shorter oh, stories. Oh yeah, I, I know it's it's so horrific and but it's so affecting. It just it just is. I I I mean I love the stand. I love the stand, obviously. But the Long Walk just I I remember as you say I remember reading it and then just being affected by it for so long afterwards. 
because yeah. his his horror is so small but so exact and it just get just right to the heart of everything that's kind of wrong with the world as well as being horror so it's just that's just a it's such a brilliant story such a brilliant it's a brilliant story. brilliant story yeah what one book would you recommend to our listeners and why oh it's got to be the road it really has i mean cormac mccarthy just i mean i love everything that he's written and i i mean when you look at like you know when you look at all the pretty horses and that kind of series it's he's such an amazing writer and he's such a poetic writer and he gives no credit to grammar and sentence structure and it works so well and in a way that I don't feel it would maybe work for any other living writer. Um, and The Road was so different to anything else that I'd read of his before. But it is so horrific. And there is, you know, the ending is so horrific because it's still as bleak as the beginning. It is no hope and yet you keep reading. And there's a scene in a house in a basement that's one of the purest horror scenes that I've read, that I've ever read, and was so horrific that I just thought, I'm done, that's it, I'm done. And I still came back and I read the rest of the book because it's just so good that I couldn't not read it. It's mercifully short, I will say that. It is mercifully (laughs) short. It is just a brilliant, brilliant book. Yep, can't agree more. What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling author? Write what you love. Just just think about what it is that you want to say and write that and know what your bottom line is. I was very lucky. I went to the Northern Film School and it was brilliant. I went during a brilliant cohort. I met some brilliant people and I got tutored by some amazing tutors. And one of the things I always said is, you know, just you have to learn not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So when you get edits from someone, anyone, there has to be your bottom line has to be what it is that you know you want to write about. So for me, it was one writing about the last person alive. And that was my bottom line. When someone said, I love her, but do you want to introduce her to another character? You have to know what it is that you love about your story. Because, you know, I could have introduced another character and it could have been a brilliant book. Um, but then I would have been having a very different conversation with you now because I would, yeah. been, I would, I wouldn't have written the book that I love, and I've written a book that I absolutely love, and the fact that other people love it is brilliant. But even if they hadn't, I would have known that it was worthwhile writing it. And it's such a long process, you know. We're like three years down the line from when I first started writing it. If you don't love it, it's a very long three years. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. great advice. And lastly. What truly scares you, Beth? I'm so claustrophobic that I cannot drive on a motorway because I will not be able to pull the car over and get out when I want to. I can't cope with being told or, or having to stay in one place at any one time. So I, you know, I'm fine in a small space and go onto the cupboard under my stairs with the door open. If you shut that door and put me in there, then no. So any kind of like shut in small spaces, not being able to walk away, not being able to have that freedom almost. Yeah, that's it. I think it's Roald Dahl wrote a really great short story about a wife who's constantly nagged by her husband. Oh, no, a husband is constantly nagged by his wife. And then basically the, their lift gets stuck in their house. It's set in old New York. And he goes away on holiday and leaves her in the lift while she's caught, knowing that no one's going to come for the next two weeks. And that's my idea of horror. She's going to oh. die, but she's going to die in a very small space as well. So I'm like, oh. Oh. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, awful. so small spaces, being stuck in small spaces. Like 
I've not watched it because I wouldn't be able to cope with it, but there's a Ryan Reynolds film, I think, isn't there? Oh, right? Jesus. Have you watched it? Yeah. Buried. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Never, see, never, just... never watch it, Beth. Never watch it. <laughs> well, it's been worth coming on today <laughs> to get that. I couldn't watch it. The very idea of it, just, I just, no, 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 no. The thing about that film is, and I'm not going to tell you anything that would upset you because I'm not going to say anything specific I'm not that cruel. The reason you shouldn't watch it is, it's so much worse than even the synopsis suggests. <laughs> like the, the final sort of like reveal of that film is so much worse than you imagine it is. So <laughs> please never watch it. <laughs> oh my God, don't. I'm starting, I can't breathe now. I'm starting to like have yeah. a like panic attack. Let's, let's, let's leave that there. <laughs> let's, let's talk about open places. So like... Into my garden. <laughs> where, where can my listeners find you online? Um, I am on Twitter at Beth underscore Clift, I think. Hold on, I'm just checking. I'm just checking. Um, I'm Instagram Beth Wright stuff. And I am Twitter. Uh, hold on one second. Oh, yeah, I am at Beth underscore Clift. So please do come along. And as I say, if you're in America, uh, proofs will be going out soon. So please feel free to contact me and I will see what I can do about getting you one. And people, you definitely should. Um... I know it sounds like a grim proposition reading a book about the end of the world during a pandemic, but all it will do is augment the reading experience. I cannot recommend this book enough. It's, I will go as far as to say it's my favourite book I've read so far in 2021. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's brilliant. You should have said that, yeah, but don't get too excited, love. We're only in February. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Christ knows where the, where the year's going to go from here. <laughs> All that remains to say is, Bethany Clift, thanks for talking scared. Oh, thank you so much. It's been absolutely lovely. And now I'm going to go and not watch Ryan Reynolds' film. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good choice. <laughs> thank you. Bit of a luxury this week, then. Due to the vagaries of the publishing schedule under COVID, I spoke to an author who, whose book you may have already had the chance to read. If you have, please let me know what you think of it. Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Are you, like me, plagued by the cries of chimpanzees? Whew. I had a strange relationship with Last One at the Party. I loved it, adored it, couldn't put it down. But I also wanted it over and out of my life for a while. I've read my fair share of apocalyptic fiction, and to be fair, I've read a fair share of other people's as well. But but this one wounded me. Maybe it's the obvious connotation of the time. Maybe it's the fact that it takes place in a recognisable landscape for me here in the UK. Maybe it's just the way it's written. But something about this book crawled inside me and hasn't left yet. I like, respect and appreciate all the books I discuss on this show. But you can't love them all. This one I have, and I, I'm guessing that's probably coming through in my voice. It'll be the same in a few weeks, actually, when we discuss Katrina Ward's Last House on Needless Street, possibly the greatest horror novel I've read in the last decade. Sometimes books are like friends, and to steal and distort a Stephen King quote, maybe there are no good friends, no bad friends, only people you want, need to be with, people who build their houses in your heart. Yeah, translate books for friends. That's how I feel about some of these. But that's quite enough earnestness from me. I'm British after all. We have a certain veneer of toxic 
masculine reserve that must be readministered liberally at all times. But do go and read Last One at the Party. And if you've got a dog or a cat or any kind of animal companion who loves you unreservedly, give them a treat and tell him or her that she's good. Speaking of dogs, as an aside, we mention Richard Matheson's I Am Legend quite a bit in our conversation, and I kind of made the point that he's a monster, and I said tantamount to a rapist. Some of you who have only seen the Will Smith film will think, you know, what the hell is he on about? But take it from me, read the book. That film is a terrible, failed adaptation. It may be good when he's racing in the streets and fighting zombies, and yes, the dog is lovely, and, you know, massive sob about that. But the movie empties out and burns everything that makes the book so powerful. It doesn't just change the events of the novel, it strips out the novel's essential point, which, trust me, is much cooler than Will Smith saving humanity. I Am Legend makes the ultimate companion piece to last one at the party. Read them both. Um, I think that would be quite the experience. Yeah. So aside from books, the year is rolling along. I won't say merrily, but it's picking up a certain jauntiness in its step. Have you had the vaccine yet? I hope so. And I hope your loved ones have too. We're bizarrely doing okay here in the UK. Despite having Captain Bobblehead Johnson at the helm... We've managed to avoid utterly balling the vaccination process. The sun has come out. Infections are coming down. We even had a mad meteor shower on Sunday night that shockingly wasn't aliens or the end of the world. Things feel almost sprightly. And this show is going from good to better as well. I hope you're still enjoying it. If you are, please tell a friend. You know, let's get the R number of the show up. <laughs> I've gathered a circle of constant listeners now, which is nice. These are the guys who write to me a lot on Twitter. I'm sure there are more of you out there, and please do not feel neglected. But for now, I'd like to say thanks to Daniel Soule, to Kat Treadwell, to Benjamin Gardner, and to Gaijin Johnny for their continued enthusiasm and support. I'm glad you guys are listening, and thanks for sharing and getting in touch and making me feel like I'm not screaming into the dark. If anyone else wants to get in touch, or hallelujah, leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, then please do, otherwise I will start threatening you with demonic infestation. Um, And it's worth getting in touch on Twitter. You can find me, as ever, at TalkScaredPod, or you can email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm going to be running a lot more book giveaways in the next few weeks. So yeah, come and say hello. It's good to chat. But all that said, we've been through the ringer this week. If you've read this book, you'll know what I mean. So stay happy, wash your hands, cover your mouth, gaffer tape the tear in your hazmat suit and tell your dog you love him. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>